This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore of a 2015 interview with Dr. Jack Warren about the path to an American victory in the Revolutionary War, one that began in the South and right here in South Carolina. This encore is a part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome again to our conversations on Colonial Revolutionary America, sponsored by the Institute for Southern Studies and the College of Arts and Sciences at the university. And it's a great pleasure to welcome tonight Dr. Jack Warren from Washington, D.C. Jack is a longtime friend. He and I first met about 15 years ago. We were among the first group of George Washington professors for the Society of the Cincinnati, and I think you represented Maryland. I did. And in 2000, he wrote a rather important book, The Presidency of George Washington, and in 2004 was named the executive director of the Society of the Cincinnati. In fact, he was the first professional director of the Society, and he's also director of the American Revolution. Institute of the Society. Revolutionary War Institute. And it's not just, he's interested in the war that the South won, but he's also interested in the other one, and he's on the, bo- he's on the board of the Civil War Trust. <laughs> so, Jack, welcome, and tonight we're going to talk about the revolution in the South. It's a conversation you and I have, have had before, and you can start off wherever you want to. Prepare us for coming south? Why the British had this grand southern strategy? Well, we'll start with thank you all for coming out to listen to, to two guys ramble for a while about, about the American Revolution, which is the most important event in modern human history. Um, that's a bold statement, but, but before digging into the revolution where it was won and where all the men were bold and all the women beautiful and, and the event was, you know, independence was consummated, we need to be serious for a moment and, and re- remember why the American Revolution was important. Um, it's a long time ago, the revolution, and, and when you look at pictures of people from the revolution, you see, you know, men with powdered wigs and we know behind their lips are wooden teeth and they dress funny and they're not like us. And more importantly, they're not like our our children and our grandchildren who have trouble connecting with them. But it's really important that that we teach the rising generation about the American Revolution because it did three things. The revolution established our national independence. That alone makes it an important event. It created our national identity and it articulated our highest values, values about liberty and individualism and independence and civic responsibility. It made us who we are. The revolution revolution began in Massachusetts, but it was won, and for the British, it was lost in the South. Um, The British hoped to win it here after much frustration and stagnation in the North, and they came close to doing it. Or at least I think they did. Walter, you know a lot more about South Carolina than I do, but, but the revolution in South Carolina, when it reaches South Carolina in, in full force in 1780 and 81, becomes the principal battleground of the war. And the British have, in a sense, put almost all of their hopes in the, in the victory in a southern campaign in the revolution um, to recapture South Carolina. And, and once they capture South Carolina, little Georgia, an infant colony will fall. North Carolina, which is a cultural appendage in many ways. I hope there are no North Carolinians in the <laughs> of South Carolina will fall. Um, and even if they can't conquer all of the rebellious colonies, they'll have this part. And in many ways, the most valuable part commercially, politically, militarily. And so when the war comes to grief for them, starting in the fall of 1780 and, and into 81 here, um, the war unravels for them. It's the decisive moment in the American Revolution. You couldn't have said it better. And it's, it's interesting to look at, at British strategy, I should really should say English strategy, because it was English strategy. And to go back and read the memoirs, at least to the principals here in the South, both Sir Henry Clinton, Lord Cornwallis, and although something of a sideshow, Bannister Tarleton. And then you also look at what the English polit- what did the English politicians have in mind? They needed a quick victory. 
a big victory. The war was dragging on, taxes were high, and we're fighting this war and these Americans are still out there. They haven't been conquered by the greatest army, certainly the greatest navy in the world. What on earth is going on? And so they had to come up with the strategy to, well, we'll, we'll as Jack said, we'll take the South. And as I know most of you know, if they got South Carolina, they got the richest of the 13 colonies. Who cares about the cod in Massachusetts and that kind of thing? <laughs> Nearly a half of the economic wealth that goes to Great Britain from the colonies comes from the Southern colonies. So if you've got that, they can have the colonies north of the Mason-Dixon line. So it was as much, Jack, a political decision as it was a military decision. It is. I mean, the, the British are focused primarily in, in this period on the wealth of the Caribbean. And I mean, it's, it's hard to us to imagine today, I mean, because we think of Barbados or Jamaica as, as sort of pleasure destinations, but these places were economic engines that produced enormous wealth for Britain and the sugar and the, the, the value and trade of, of, uh, of the produce of the Caribbean was enormous. Um, and they, they didn't want to lose it. Um, now they looked on, and this is an interesting thing, a lot of recent historians, young historians, have argued that, that Savannah and Charleston, uh, and even as far north as North Carolina, are really sort of peripheral Caribbean colonies, sort of like the, south, the, the colonies on the mainland of South America on the other side. They're really part of a broader Caribbean world, and that's the world in which the British are focused on, on holding and controlling. Uh, and they believe that they can do it primarily with naval power, and the British have the most powerful navy in the world. So they can control New York, they can take Newport, they can hold the Delaware River in Philadelphia, um, they can bottle up the Chesapeake Bay, and they can take Charleston with the Navy, although they had no business taking it, it shouldn't have been lost in 1780, and use these places as naval bases to control trade with the Caribbean and really to dominate the trade of the Atlantic world. And Charleston is an ideal place to do that. It's as, it's as valuable a port in many ways in this period as New York is. Um, and, and so can become the principal naval and military center for the British at the end, uh, at the tail end of the revolution. And they, they, you know, they really want to hold Charleston. But of course, to do that, they've got to control the hinterland too, the interior where they can draw food and supplies without having to bring everything all the way across the Atlantic. And as Jack said, the Navy is, is absolutely crucial. But until they decided to come south in a, in a major way, not that there hadn't been major engagements in the north, I don't want to gainsay that, but they brought 10, over 10,000 troops to South Carolina. Now that was a big army in the 18th century, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's enormous. Even in, 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 you know, until the armies of Napoleon, you know, the forces that the British sent overseas to, to take the rebellious colonies, beginning with their invasion of New York in, in 1776, were the largest overseas forces any European nation had ever sent anywhere. Now, in, after the French entered the war, the British had to pull back, and so they abandoned Philadelphia and, and retreated to New York City in the summer of 1778. And from that point on, you know, they, they had to, they dispersed their forces to protect the Caribbean because they were worried about the French Navy picking off their sugar islands, which the French did actually quite successfully, um, one after another. And the British had to disperse their forces to defend the Caribbean, but they, they decided to, to devote the most important, most active, and some of the best troops they had, very large force, to come south to, you know, to take Charleston and secure that this sort of southern tier of the, these colonies, the ones they truthfully, they valued the most, which were the greatest economic engines of British North America. The conquest of Charleston is one of the most important moments of the American Revolution. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore of a 2015 interview with Dr. Jack Warren about the path to an American victory in the Revolutionary War, one that began in the South and right here in South Carolina. This encore is a part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Now, I have a question for you. 
You, you've argued um, that the British blundered. Now, they took Charleston. I don't think Charleston had to be taken. No, no that, that, losing Charleston was Benjamin Lincoln's blunder, blunder. despite right. two biographers trying to resurrect him. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it is one of the greatest defeats the American army has ever suffered throughout its history and to the present day. I mean, it was, there's no question that, that Lincoln blundered. I mean, and you can all just look forward 70 years and see that you know, the Confederacy managed to defend Charleston and take advantage of that geography for years uh, and prevent the, the, the Union from taking the city. But even after pulling back into the fortifications of Charleston, an aggressive naval defense, I mean, it just had a few ships, American ships in uh, to defend Charleston Harbor, but if they had defended the channel into Charleston Harbor, think of it, it's very simple. Um, British had enormously powerful vessels of war, but 18th century sailing vessels only fire from the sides, right? Broadsides. And one or two modest warships, which the Americans possessed, placed at 90 degrees or athwart the main ship channel into Charleston Harbor, would force the British, the British have to sail to you, and they have to come straight at you to get through the channel. The channel's fairly narrow. So one or two vessels, just, just 20 or 30 guns would have protected that channel, but the American naval commander surrendered the channel, allowed the British Navy to get into Charleston Harbor, which was vital to the British because otherwise they couldn't have brought supplies into the army laying siege. Lincoln was banking, I think, that the supply lines that the British depended upon could be severed, but as soon as they gave up control of the waterways, they were lost. And, and with them, Charleston was lost. You know, and of course, there are surrenders in the interior. American forces give up in Camden, 96. And I was going to say, you, you've argued that at that point, the British engaged in a campaign of retribution and, and harsh treatment of folks, in the, particularly in the back country, in low country planners and so on. And they turn people against the British occupation. Could it have happened a different way? Well, of course, it actually started on the coast, Jack, because one of the things Clinton did, and in Cornwallis's memoirs, he's quick to say, this is what started the unraveling. It was all Sir Henry Clinton's fault. <laughs> when Charleston surrendered in the 18th century, typically armies surrendered. They didn't have POW camps. They didn't want to be bothered. Individuals were given parole. The 6,000 troops or so in Charleston uh, both regular Continentals and militia were given their parole, which said, I signed my parole, I'm going to go home, I will not take up arms again. All right? Very simple. Well, as he was leaving Charleston, Sir Henry Clinton issued a proclamation revoking those paroles and said, sorry, boys, but you're going to have to now sign an oath of allegiance to the king, and if we need you, you're going to have to put on a red coat and fight your fellow South Carolinians. That's really the beginning of the unraveling. Um, it was contempt. Well, they're just colonials. They're just continent. You know, they're colonials. This thing of honor and parole, who are they? They're traitors. They're rebels. And so the, the paroles were revoked. And immediately, people outside of Charleston, particularly officers and men who had given their paroles, they weren't about to sign that oath of allegiance because that automatically said they'd have to end up taking arms against their fellow South Carolinians. And then you have people like Bannister Tarleton who thought that the only way to make sure that these rebels, this, these rabble, uh, kept their place was to give them the heel of the boot to treat them that way, starting with the controversial Battle of the Waxhaws. And that, since that involved Marylanders, I might let you pick up the story there. Well, not one of our proudest moments. Uh, <laughs> we like to say we're mostly Virginians there, but... Um, <laughs> well, the British managed, you know, of course, Clinton sends out, immediately sends out troops to pacify the interior and there aren't very many Continental troops left. The, the principal force uh, Tarleton manages to run down at the Waxhaws and attacks and, and, and 
troops are surrender and they're massacred in, the, in attempting to surrender, one of the most controversial moments of the Revolutionary War. Um, and it's the, the moment from which Tarleton gets his, his hideous reputation, which he confirmed over and over again elsewhere. You know, and he wrote a, a lengthy memoir trying to justify all of his actions, but in fact, you know, the stink of his conduct hangs with him these 200 years later. Um, and, and, and Jack, he was not alone. No. He had, you know, James Weems and uh, Major Kruger, who were, who were other of Cornwallis's subordinates, were equally as harsh in dealing with the local populace. They, were, they had no intention of winning the hearts and minds. But my argument, to go back to it, was maybe they should have tried. You know, every garrison in South Carolina had surrendered. Every single one of them had surrendered after the fall of Charleston. All they had to do was do what they'd done in Georgia, reinstall local government. William Bull, the last royal lieutenant governor, a South Carolinian, came with the occupying fleet. But instead of doing that, they declare, basically installed martial law, and then you have Cornwallis and his cohorts running through the countryside. In, in the American Revolution, and I think most particularly in South Carolina, there's another dynamic, and it's the dynamic between loyalists and patriots in the backcountry. Mm -hmm. And even if the British had been gentler and kindler... <laughs> Mission and, impossible. And had, and had sought to win the hearts and minds, aren't there just so many opportunistic loyalists who are looking for an you know for an occasion to to take advantage of the situation and, and take advantage of their patriot neighbors isn't there enough bad blood in the back country in particular that that a peaceful resolution of the revolution in 1780-81 in South Carolina is impossible even if Clinton and then Cornwallis pursue a different policy well that is a what if a a perhaps because the tension between the law and the open warfare, the Civil War, as they referred to it themselves, George Washington actually referred to the conflict in South Carolina as a civil war. And one of the difficulties is not just loyalists and patriots, it is people swapping sides. Um, you and I both have been in discussions when folks will ask, and it was asked last week, what percentage of the population were real loyalists, which percentage were real patriots, and what the rest? And it usually comes down to one-third, one-third, one-third. The middle third being whose army's in the front yard. Right. <laughs> and I would, I would suggest it's probably, you know, it's more like 10%, 10%, 80%. Um, I mean, it really isn't a third. I mean, they're in, most people are, and particularly um, in the hinterland, the back country, are, are struggling to survive, and they, they, they want as little to do with this war as possible unless there is an opportunity in, in it for them, which shifts continuously, I mean, you know, with, with the forces that are, are prevailing. So there are people who switch sides, there are people who um, serve, as, serve in one army, then the other, and then in the other again. Um, it's quite, quite extraordinary. But... It, 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 it illustrates the, the enormous swings, the vicissitudes of the revolution in South Carolina, which are different than anywhere else. You know, it's a great colony which is almost entirely conquered for a moment, mm -hmm. for a very brief moment. I mean, you think it's in July and August of 1780. And Well, actually, by July, things are starting to heat up. Huck's defeat occurs in July, mid-July. And from that mid-July date until Kings Mountain, there are about 25 actual battles. And except for Camden and Fishing Creek, they're all partisan victories. I do think that the behavior of the Army of the Occupation had a lot to do with the way folks reacted. A lot of those Scots, they're now Ulster Scots, they're not Scots-Irish. <laughs> After the fall of Charleston, even some of those who had been in uniform said, you know, it's over. They wanted to go back to their farm in peace. Many of the Germans in the back country didn't want to fight at all. So that initially, there was not a whole lot of sentiment. Even after the fall of Charleston, you know, it was their war. 
Charleston's war. But it became the backcountry's war once Tarleton, Weems, and Kruger went to 96, Hanging Rock, you know, the British outposts. A young army major years ago wrote a book comparing the war in Vietnam to the revolution in South Carolina because the British operated with strong points. One of them was Fort Congaree, Georgetown, 96, Camden, and occupied them. And they could control things, the line of communications during the day, but they couldn't control the countryside at night. Well, it's very much, I mean, in that sense, the revolution in South Carolina, the British have become more sophisticated by the time the war reaches here. But the same pattern had held in the North. Um, the British were able to take, the English were able to take New York. Um, but they weren't able to, and they had these superior naval forces, they could dominate the waterways around New York City, so they could take New York, but they couldn't collect supplies in the interior. Washington's army, Washington's dragoons and, and, and light infantry were able to hem in the British and prevent them from going out in the hinterland to get supplies. So they could, they were forced, the British were continuously forced to bring supplies from Nova Scotia and from Ireland principally um, across the ocean. And so they would be prey to American privateers. The American Navy was very weak, but American privateers were very effective. And the same thing happened when the British took New York, is that the British were unable to go into the hinterland, I mean, took Philadelphia. They were unable to go into the hinterland and collect supplies from that rich farming country of southeastern Pennsylvania. And so when the war reached the south and they, they took Charleston, they had learned enough that, that, that you know, that they decided that the, uh, the proper strategy was to construct these strong points in the interior so that they could use them to protect lines of supply to bring food and material into Charleston so that they wouldn't be dependent on overseas shipping continuously. Um, and it's, it's at that moment that, that, that Marion and Pickens and Sumter become so important. And they become, I mean, you know, and, the, and, and what Gates had regarded them all as, as local rabble and of no value, particularly militarily. But they wind up digging in, cutting those lines of supply, harassing the British, and preventing the British, employing this new kind of strategy to suppress the war in the interior from, from that strategy being effective. And it makes them really central heroes of the American Revolutionary War. As they were recognized in both the South and the North, in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. Especially Francis Marion. Yes. To back up to Horatio Gates, who succeeded Benjamin Lincoln as commander of the Continental Forces in the South, uh, the alleged hero of Saratoga, and I say alleged because it was really Benedict Arnold who was the hero of Saratoga, Horatio Gates would not listen to Marion as he brought his army down. What does he know? And part of it was, if you read the correspondence, because Marion had a mixed rabble, which included Catawba Indian braves, persons of color, both slave and free, and backcountry farmers who didn't have any regular uniforms. The difference came that they were, when it wasn't just the fact that they were very good, Marion, Sumter, and Pickens. And by the way, Sumter was a great recruiter, not a particularly good field general. Um, he got caught with his pants down twice, Jack. Um, uh, Literally? <laughs> oh, re really? <laughs> Nothing amorous, just bad timing. Uh, <laughs> that, that sounds like the story of my life, Walter. <laughs> nothing, nothing amorous, just bad timing. <laughs> but, but. When Washington sent the man south that he wanted to have the Southern armies, Nathaniel Green, it was a different story. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore of a 2015 interview with Dr. Jack Warren about the path to an American victory in the Revolutionary War, one that began in the South and right here in South Carolina. This encore is a part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Nathaniel Green understood that he, he could use these folks. And he didn't come up with the idea of mobile armies, mobile defense, or mobile offense, but that's exactly what he did. He used them. He 
kind of set him loose, but he also, remember, sent Light Horse Harry Lee out with Marion. That's a striking contrast. It's important. Gates, I mean, now there have been some efforts, not as strenuous as they have been with respect to Lincoln, to resurrect Gates, which is a hard thing to do. Um, Gates was a really very fine quartermaster, a very good administrator, uh, good at setting up the army, and was vital to Washington early in the war, but he was an incompetent field commander, um, no question. And, and the disaster at Camden is purely, purely his. And, and, and Green, is, Green is cleverer, he's luckier too, um, and does use the partisans much more effectively. But you've skipped over King's Mountain, which for me is, is I mean, King's Mountain is, is the, is the is the the great turning point of the American Revolution. Well, you can keep Saratoga. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as I mentioned, the backcountry beginning in mid-July, this is already after Camden now, Camden's mid-July, until Kings Mountain in September, there are about 20, 25 battles at places like Hanging Rock and Thickety Ford and Cedar Springs and um, so forth. And except for Fishing Creek, which was Sumter, they were all partisan victories. And with each partisan victory, you mentioned the loyalist issue. The triumphant, the winners were all the partisan groups. They were not the loyalists. And so people began to have second thoughts. Am I going to join? a loyalist militia. And in the backcountry, you look at uh, who the local leaders might happen to be. In most cases, in the small towns, those folks became partisans after the fall of Charleston, certainly after the Battle of the Waxhaws. And to a certain extent, Presbyterian clergy played a large role. They believed that the English were the devils. Look what they'd done to our forebears in Scotland. The most prominent backcountry clergyman who was a loyalist was a clergyman in, in Spartan District. He took about half his congregation with him into the loyalist camp. The rest of them didn't follow him, and they, they became partisans. So it's, it's each of those successes, Jack, one builds on another until you get to King's Mountain, and then you have inexplicable behavior by the Army of Occupation. Major Ferguson sends insulting letters across the mountains to the over-the-mountain boys, North Carolinians who've moved over the mountains into East Tennessee, you know, basically saying, you're not a real man unless you stand with the king, your wives won't respect you, so forth and so on, insulting their manhood. And in the stories of King's Mountain, the -the over-the-mountain boys get a lot of credit. But this was a true intercolonial militia force. There were Georgians there from both Carolinas, Virginia, as well as the -the over-the-mountain boys. So Cornwallis is in Charlotte. He had sent Ferguson out to track down whoever he could. Ferguson had a thousand men in his command. They were militia, all of them armed with muskets, not with rifles, armed with muskets. And the irony here is that Major Ferguson had developed a rifle for the British Army, but the British didn't use it because it wasn't considered gentlemanly. (laughs) Fired too fast. So, he, Ferguson's got scouts out there. He knows that all of these folks, the folks that come up from Georgia, the, everybody's trailing his force. And instead of moving on in to Charlotte to link up with Cornwallis, he decides to stop at King's Mountain. Now, King's Mountain is a big piece of rock. You know, I've heard, I heard somebody say, well, all the Brits had to do was to dig in. Well, you can't dig in on King's Mountain. It is rock. And he was surrounded. His army was surrounded. The Battle of King's Mountain, there are many descriptions of it. A lot of the veterans who did fight there would talk about, they would call it a turkey shoot. 
these backcountry boys from all the places I've mentioned, from Georgia, the two Carolinas, everybody, everybody had a clump of the perimeter and they all went up the hill. Well, when Ferguson discovered what was going on, first of all, they fired downhill. Well, they're firing muskets. And if you're firing a musket downhill, it shoots high. And obviously the, the folks on the top of the mountain are scrambling, literally figuring out what's going on, because people are coming from all directions. And the partisans are moving uphill, stopping to fire from behind a tree stump, from behind an outcropping of, of rock, and they're firing rifles. And if I were to fire a rifle at you, you're going to be exposed on the mountain as we are going up. Several times, Ferguson tried to rally his troops. He was on a white horse, and this is one of those things after the war. Who Everybody claimed they shot Ferguson. Well, he looked like a, a sieve. And then after the Americans captured the top of the mountain, the backcountry boys showed their extreme disgust and disrespect. Ferguson's corpse was stripped naked, and then the backcountry boys urinated on his body. That was the extreme, you know, that was as low as you could get. I, I readily acknowledge the importance of all of that, the range of, of partisan victories in August, and particularly August and September, leading up to King's Mountain. And there wouldn't have been a King's Mountain without it. True. Because that's what Ferguson is responding to. And, and you're right, it really was a mixed force. You had people from southwest extreme of Virginia all the way to Georgia drawn together there. And there clearly was a case where the commander made an incredible political blunder. I mean, sending over a message, you know, over the mountains, because some of these over mountain men have been participated at Fishing Creek and elsewhere. He knows where these guys are from. He's captured some of them and sends one of the captured men back across the mountains with a message that says, you will lay down your arms. Tell a guy who lives in what is now East Tennessee that he has to lay down his arms. Um, <laughs> And if you don't do that, I will march across the mountains and lay waste to your uh, settlements with fire and sword. I mean, really, I mean, quite extreme rhetoric. I mean, he comes very close to saying, you know, I will burn your villages and, you know, slaughter your children and laugh at the lamentations of your women or something. And just really, he doesn't go quite that far, but it's, he's pretty bad. Um, and so they gather and they come across the mountains and attack him and, and do to him what he had threatened to do to them. It's an important victory. It's critical. It doesn't cripple the British, although it certainly gives Cornwallis pause, and he stops his northward march in North Carolina at that point. The thing that's so critical about Kings Mountain is it gets national press. Um, the fall of Charleston had been regarded nationally, had been regarded in the North everywhere as, as, a, as an extraordinary disaster, the greatest military disaster of the Revolution up to that point. And there was, because a French minister suggests at one point, well, maybe the, we ought to make peace with the British. And, you know, with status quo, the British get to keep the South and the North go, that goes independent. And all those sorts of, of outcomes were possible. But King's Mountain gets announced in Congress. It makes the newspapers. And it kind of, it rallies support in a way that all of that array of little battles, which collectively are just every bit as important as King's Mountain, don't achieve because they don't make the papers. And they don't make the history books either. One of the interesting things I wanted to share with you is that I'm involved right now with, with the Civil War Trust, which will become, I think, in time, the American Battlefield Trust, because they've moved into the business of preserving battlefields of the American Revolution. There aren't as many of them and not as many acres involved as there are Civil War battlefields. One of the early targets that we're talking about are, are this array of battles, the late summer and fall of 1780 in South Carolina, little battles that collectively turn the tide of the Revolutionary War. I hope you will all take pleasure in this because it's critically important that, that historic places be preserved so that particularly the rising generation know that these things happened as our world changes so dramatically, that these places, admittedly, they're merely the stage set for the great events of the past, but that they should survive as reminders. We wouldn't know as much as a people about, say, our Civil War if we didn't have Gettysburg and Antietam. And we need to preserve these places too. And, and so 
That's one of the most exciting things going on in revolutionary war activity at the moment. Um, and it'll focus prime, a lot of it, a lot of the energy on this exact period you're talking about, that summer and fall of 1780, when the tide of the revolution in South Carolina turned, and that definitively turned the course of the war. Well, the British, at least in retrospect, recognized that Kings Mountain was important. In fact, Clinton, in his memoirs, said when he learned of it, he said this was the first in a series of a chain of events that led to the unraveling of empire. So you've got Kings Mountain, and the other great battle, of course, you've got is, is Cowpens. This is where I think Green probably doesn't get all the credit that he deserves. The way he maneuvered, had his army maneuver, who in his right mind as a military commander, they wouldn't teach this at West Point or at Leavenworth either, I guarantee you. You're, you're uh, smaller than your enemy and you split your force in half, which is what Green did, and sent Daniel Morgan over after Tarleton, and you've got the battle at, at Cowpens, which is the only battle of the American Revolution where regular British troops fled the field from American forces. The only one. And Tarleton himself was almost captured. And then the race to the Dan, Morgan joins up with Green. They race to the Dan River so they can get resupplied on the other side of the Dan River in Virginia. Cornwallis follows him and then Cornwallis decides to turn back, and the hunter then becomes the hunted. As Green follows him back, you've got the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which technically is declared a British victory, probably pretty much was a draw. And we're not going to talk about what you saw in The Patriot. We're just going to, you know, we can talk about what, about what happened. And then Cornwallis moves to the, the coast, to Wilmington, and then marches to Virginia, and several months later, he surrenders at Yorktown. Of course, this brings me to my, my favorite topic of how people talk about the revolution today. Again, you and I have had this conversation. In most books, it's Lexington and Concord, it's Bunker Hill, it's Saratoga, it's Yorktown. The end. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore of a 2015 interview with Dr. Jack Warren about the path to an American victory in the Revolutionary War one that began in the South and right here in South Carolina. This encore is a part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Well, how did Cornwallis get to Yorktown? The high command and politicians in London decided we're gonna take the Southern colonies. He comes South with the Great Southern Campaign. His army is whittled away, all of these little the small battles that you you know that you say nobody talks about much, but I see some folks in here from the Battlefield Trust in South Carolina side. So I guarantee you they can tell you where Thickety Fort was and First Cedar Springs, and not to mention that Brattonsville, Huck's Defeat is a fabulous county historical part. But you know every one of those things. Every time there was a Patriot or partisan victory, the enemy lost soldiers that could not be replaced. They lost access to supplies to information. Well, that's the critical difference between this war and more familiar ones, like the Civil War. I mean, you think of the, the American Civil War. Large armies, well-supplied. I mean, even the Confederate Army is well-supplied by the standards of 18th century armies that have access to good roads, railroads, river communication and supply, operate in mass and encounter one another in battles to the death the Gettysburgs and the Antietams and the Chickamaugas. An 18th century general would never risk his army, you know, cast the dice on an all or nothing battle. The purpose of, of a military operation is to take possession of territory and to, to whittle away at the enemy's ability to conduct operations. Um, Green knew this, he was a great student of military history. Cornwallis did too. You don't risk your army in an all-out battle. Your goal is to, is to cripple the enemy. That doesn't make, great, you know, doesn't make great battles. It makes dozens and dozens of little battles all over the countryside in which you're hemming in the enemy, preventing him from, from collecting supplies and, and from maintaining his army 
in an area, you think backcountry South Carolina at this time, it's very difficult to, to maintain an army, to, to move supplies around. You know, the road network is so primitive that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a lot of guerrilla activity, a lot of these insurgents to, to shut down your lines of supply. Green recognizes this, and, and, and Green emerges victorious in his southern campaign. You think Guilford Courthouse and... 96 and Utah Springs, battles which, you know, formally are defeats in one way or another, qualified victories at best in certain ways, and yet each one of them diminishes the British ability, the English ability, Mm -hmm. to continue to fight, to supply their army. And of course, you know, Guilford Courthouse, Cornwallis recognizes later in life that that was a big mistake that the attack at, at Guilford Courthouse was a big mistake because it, it costs him troops he can never replace. And so he winds up in possession of the field. Well, what was that field worth? You know, Green gets away and the British have lost troops they can never, never replace. And by that time, the war in the Carolinas is over. It, and he, just, he, makes a, he makes a decision he's not going back to South Carolina. Right. He's going to go to Virginia. I think he uses a phrase, I've had enough adventures there. <laughs> um, but Nathaniel Green, some of his detractors say, well, he never won a battle, but he won the war. Well, it's like George Washington. Yeah. Uh, didn't win very many battles, but he understood how to fight an 18th century war. And so, yeah, the, the role of Washington's defeats um, is a lot longer I mean, you know, you pile them up. Well, there's Yorktown and there's Trenton and Princeton, and in between, there's a lot of at best drawn battles like Monmouth and outright, you know, disasters like Brooklyn and Brandywine and Germantown. But Washington holds the army together, and he prevents the enemy from effectively conducting operations, and forces the British. I've made this point before, but I, I can't underscore it heavily enough. Forces the British to rely on supplies brought from overseas because the American privateers are incredibly effective at preying on British commerce. And then when the French enter the war, you have the French Navy and the Spanish Navy attacking British commerce, and, and that forces the British government to make peace because the British merchant community will not support the war anymore. I mean, by 1780, by the time that these events are taking place in the back country of South Carolina, the the cost of maritime insurance on the London market is now is gone up 600% in the space of three years. I mean, any of you are businessmen or businesswomen? The idea that you're paying 600% more for insurance than you were just a few years ago? Because you've got American privateers and the French and the Spanish Navy out in the Atlantic attacking your commerce everywhere. Um, you know, in one day, the British lost an entire East India fleet to the Spanish Navy. So this is a world war that's going on. And, and the, British, the British merchant community in London is enough is enough. And every, all the bad news coming from America, King's Mountain, it doesn't just make the paper in, in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. It makes the paper in London. And the merchants, you know, we can't win this thing. You know, and meanwhile, the French have a fleet on the coast of India and they're gonna take the Indian colonies back. India is the principal source of saltpeter, which is the principal ingredient, the key ingredient in gunpowder, and without Indian saltpeter, you can't fight 18th century war. And the, you know, the merchants are like, enough is enough. And there are, there are these wonderful pamphlets that are published in London in early 1781. So this is, it takes a while for the news to reach London and for people to digest it about what's going on in the South. And, the, and there are these wonderful series of pamphlets written that say, look, what are we fighting for? The opportunity to collect taxes from these people? We, you know, a decade's experience has proven you can't collect taxes from these people. And if they're free, what difference does it make? They don't make anything. They've got to buy their manufactured goods from somebody. They're going to buy it from us. They're going to buy French lace and perfume? No. They're going to buy good English woolens and iron products and, and ceramics. And they're going to buy these things from us, and we're going to make plenty of money on it. Let them go in peace. And it's at that point that the war becomes politically untenable. 
what are we fighting for? Becomes the, the refrain of the British merchant community. And it's because the war has gone so badly in this part of the United States, or for them, this part of their, of their colonial empire, which is unraveling rapidly. We look on these as, as little battles that are taking place in, in late 1780, um, local affairs, but they have international implications. Um, the idea that, you know, that these little battles make the paper in London, I mean, it's quite extraordinary, but they do. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop, and we'll take some questions from the audience. You mentioned the, the Battle of Sullivan's Island. Was that in uh, 1776 when Fort Moultrie was uh, under construction? Yeah, June the 28th, 1776. And I, and I argue that the Battle of Sullivan's Island is, is the Bunker Hill of the South. Of course, at the Battle of Bunker Hill in the summer of 1775, the British, in an effort to brush the Americans besieging Boston away, engaged in a frontal assault, thinking that the Americans would run away. Um, they're just American militia. So they march in, in, in straight lines in an attack, and then it just, they lose an enormous percentage of the men engaged. They win, that is, they take Bunker Hill, but it, it's a tremendous morale boost for Americans. We can fight and, and slaughter the British wholesale. And then in June of 1778, the British send their navy. The British navy was, was an extraordinary instrument of war. One large ship of the line, first-class ship of the line, bears 90 to 105 guns, 1836-pounder guns. That's more firepower. In fact, it's more firepower on one side, one broadside, than George Washington's army ever possessed one of those vessels. So you think of those vessels coming into Charleston Harbor, coming into New York Harbor. They are floating fortresses. They're like the aircraft carriers of their day. They're immensely expensive. I mean, they, some of them had a thousand men, the biggest ones. They carried a thousand men. They carried enough gunpowder and, and cannonballs to, sh to fight two major battles, and they could remain at sea for over a year. They were extraordinary things, and nothing quaint about those things as weapons of war, and they were incredibly expensive. And the British had more of them than anybody. They can control any coastline anywhere. And the British send a squadron, it's not really a fleet, they send a squadron to take Charleston. The British haven't lost a significant naval battle anywhere in more than a generation. And they come up beside what we would later call Fort Moultrie, but at this point it is, is, is simply the fort being built on Sullivan's Island. And they land troops, they're not foolish, they land infantry uh, to the north, and the idea is that they're gonna come and, and invest the fort from behind. And like a lot of American defenses, this one was kind of foolish. That is, if the British had been able to get in behind it with infantry, they'd have taken the thing and everybody would have had to surrender. But the British couldn't, found, got, got caught at an inlet, they thought they could wade across. And, you know, we all know what inlets in the Carolinas are like. And ra rarely can you wade across them. Well, and, and waiting for them on the other side was Danger Thompson and his backcountry boys with their rifles. Ready to pick you off when you're wading out yeah. into, that, into the water, uh, whether it's the sharks or the rifles, whatever. But, you, you know, you don't want to do it. And it didn't work. The infantry part didn't work. So you just had these guns that come up on these naval vessels bombarding this little homemade fort. And Charles Lee, who had, was an American... Uh, officer had looked at these things. Washington had sent him south to help with the defense. And he said, this little, you know, fort, this is a flea-bitten thing. This is not going to defend anything. Well, of course it did. You know, the cannonballs bury into the palmettas, logs, and sand. And, and the Americans managed to, to bloody the noses of this British squadron, which then retreats. This thing goes up for years thereafter, the defeat of Parker's squadron is an embarrassment to the British, and there's there are continuous apologies and pamphlet wars that go on about the Battle of Sullivan's Island at, until even after the War of the Revolution is over, that this was such a shocking embarrassment that we were unable to, to take this fort with our great Navy. That's one of the big, I love what if, by the way. <laughs> Professional historians are not supposed to like what if. I think what if is the most interesting part. Um, what if they had won? What if they had taken Charleston in the summer of 1776 before all of... We would have all stood and sung, God Save the Queen. I, I, we I, can. I, 
yes. Would you comment on the ferocious nature and the atrocities committed between the patriots and the loyalists, the farmers who fought on each side, and how common was the take-no-prisoners attitude of these two groups? Well, there were different theories of warfare in the 18th century, and there were theories of warfare which argued that you needed to engage in intense brutality to suppress particularly popular movements, insurgencies and rebellions. The British were responding to this theory of war when they reached South Carolina. They said, well, you know, this sort of the more gentlemanly style of warfare in which armies fight one another, but you don't necessarily, you know, sack the civilian population, you don't burn down churches. But uh, a lot of historians have been very critical over the years of the Mel Gibson film, mm -hmm. The Patriot, which has a lot of things to be critical of. But one of the things that, that particularly the British press was most critical of is saying, they're making us look like Nazis. The British army in America was not like that. Well, they were, and they were worse than that. And the American loyalists were worse than that to American patriots, and the American patriots in the backcountry were just as bad. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program was an encore of a 2015 interview with Dr. Jack Warren about the path to an American victory in the Revolutionary War, one that began in the South and especially here in South Carolina. This encore is a part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.